Well, it's always a joy to be home, which St. Agnes truly is. I first became a Christian here, baptized a month after my birth, my first penance, my first communion. Many, 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 many communions after for years were in this sacred space. The sacrament of confirmation as a teenager is even blessed to receive the sacrament of holy orders when I was ordained a deacon the year before my priestly ordination right here, where Father Bill vested me that night. So, so much of my life of faith was formed and nurtured and celebrated here, so it's always good to be home. And one gift of faith in particular is my devotion to St. Joseph. It was 32 years ago when our then new pastor, Father Marcone announced our first annual Novena to St. Joseph. 32 years ago, I had no idea what a Novena was and had very little knowledge of St. Joseph. I was kind of shocked when Father Marcone said it would mean coming to church for nine consecutive nights. Ten if you counted the feast day, which he kind of dropped in about five days into it. And I never imagined it becoming a major thing, which was an early lesson in humility as we we gathered in great numbers every night. I learned pretty quickly not to underestimate Father Marcone's ability to market things. That year, he had these posters for the novena made up that as people were leaving Sunday Mass, he just kind of shoved them into everyone's hands and asked them to ask businesses around town to hang them up. More memorable was his insistence that we put these posters in our windows at home and on our doors with the promise that it had the added benefit of keeping Jehovah's Witnesses from knocking on your door. (laughs) That line was probably the most memorable because I'm pretty sure that's what convinced my father to hang it up when we got home that night. Most importantly, and even more memorable, and what has proven most true in my own life was Father Marcone's promise that if we asked for St. Joseph's prayers and intercessions, that these prayers would never fail. And it's hard to remember over 32 years how many times that's been proven true in my own life and that has been very much the case. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Since this is the, the first night of this annual novena, It's good to remember a few things, and first and most important is never to forget that it's our all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the one who answers the prayers. Whenever we honor a saint, when we have a novena in honor of them, we're seeing what God has accomplished in their lives with their, their cooperation with his grace. We're looking to the saints as an example, as a mentor, as a, as a guide to help us in our lives as we continue to face spiritual battles and temptations, whether to conform to this world or to strive for holiness. So the saints are a mix between being an inspiration and a coach for us, as well as someone who, being in heaven, being in God's presence and freed from all the distractions and temptations of this world, can intercede and pray for us most purely. And that being said, though, it's kind of interesting to think about why we look to St. Joseph for those things, as a mentor, as a guide, as an intercessor, as a friend. 
Because sitting where you are 32 years ago, I knew very little about St. Joseph. And that first year, as all those talks were unfolding, it seemed like everyone emphasized that neither did anybody else. Starting from the most obvious fact, there's so little recorded about Joseph to reflect on. To the point that he would seem the most unlikely of choices for us to go to compared to so many others. I mean, we have spiritual masterpieces written by giants like St. Augustine or Father Bill's go-to, St. Therese of Lisieux, that just reading a few sentences of theirs can cause deep reflection that a devotion to them would definitely be understandable. We have incredibly detailed biographies of people whose lives so imitated Christ, like Francis of Assisi or St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, that wanting to reflect on their examples, recognizing the challenge that their lives would gently propose to us and asking for their prayers, that would make sense. We even have like dramatic, selfless, sacrificial imitations of Christ and St. Damien of Molokai, who served the lepers in Hawaii and then contracted the disease himself and then died of it. Or the martyrdoms of St. Maximilian Kolbe, or most obvious, St. Agnes, that can easily be understood and appreciated as worthy of our attention. And we would find praying with them beneficial and fruitful in countless ways. But for St. Joseph, so much is missing for us to cling on to. We have the basic biographical details, the family lineage coming from the line of King David. We know he was a carpenter or a craftsman because probably wasn't simply limited to, to woodwork. But there's precious little known outside of those details. We don't know when or how he died. We don't even know where he's buried. And much is made of the fact that there are no words of his captured in Scripture. When people first learn that he's never quoted in Scripture, I think that comes as a bit of a surprise for most people. That can't be right. I remember thinking 32 years ago when I first heard a priest say that. And most likely that's our reaction because we have our remembrances of all the scriptural stories where he's mentioned mixed with our own imaginations. So an episode, for example, like when Mary's about ready to give birth to Jesus, mixed with my own father figures in my own life, whether it was a spiritual father like Father Marcon, my grandfather, or most especially my own father, all three of whom were very outspoken Italian men, my mind imagined the scene and story very differently. I was convinced Joseph had to have had said some words to that innkeeper when Mary's about giving, ready to give birth to Jesus and the guy says there's no room for him. But it's true. All those speakers were accurate. We hear about Joseph in Scripture, but we never hear from him in Scripture. And for some time, I found that really frustrating. But what I wanted to zero in on tonight is how the more we meditate on that seeming silence of Joseph and let that speak to us, the more that it does speak to us. And we can hear him. And what we hear from him is how he testifies how God works in amazing, unconventional ways, and in a particular way through this humble servant. And how all those lack of words, they just invite us to go deeper. 
recognizing that just because St. Joseph isn't quoted doesn't mean that he never had something to say or that he didn't speak. And most importantly, that he doesn't continue to in his own unique way, which provides us things to reflect on. Because it's important to remember that when we approach Scripture, just as important to what is said, the seeming silences, the unspoken, are also very important. Joseph not being quoted doesn't mean he was a mute or that he was somehow rendered speechless, which does happen in Scripture. And one of the most dramatic examples of that kind of helps make this point. In the Gospel of St. Luke, we hear a story that's parallel to the story of Jesus' earthly origins. Most of us remember the story of the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to conceive and bear Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the parallel is a a similar visitation of the angel to St. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Zechariah is this Jewish priest. The angel Gabriel tells him that his wife in her old age was going to have their firstborn, their only child, John, and that he was going to be this prophet to prepare the world for Jesus. Mind you, Zechariah, this holy man who would have known and studied Scripture, He only had one job, and that was basically it. Which means he should have been so well-versed in all that God's capable of, how many times and in how many ways God had intervened in the life of the Jewish people, how now for centuries the Jewish people waited in silence with there not having been any prophetic words uttered to them. But they were still clinging to that hope that God was going to come to save his people from the, the serious mess that they had made in their, their sinfulness and their disobedience over, well, the entire history of humanity. So here is Zechariah in the temple at the time when this conversation happens. And yeah, by the way, again, most obvious, he's having a conversation with an angel. And what's his reaction to the news? He speaks words that convey a lack of belief, a doubt that's almost blasphemous, almost. And so what happens is the angel shuts Zechariah's mouth before he continues down a track of unbelief. Zechariah's tongue will not be loosened until the birth of John the Baptist. And that strikes me not so much as a punishment to Zechariah, as more of it as a way of protecting his wife, the expected mother Elizabeth, and the intimacy of her body and soul as she's nurturing and loving John in the womb, God didn't want Zechariah's doubts and his unbelief to undermine her, her joyful anticipation, how her heart had already swelled at what was happening in her life for the people of Israel who had this long-awaited coming of the Messiah, coming to fulfillment, and for the entire world and the history of humanity, desperately in need of a Savior. How the longing in Elizabeth's heart over the years for a child would be met and surpassed by John the Baptist's coming, who would be such an important figure answering those greater longings, those universal longings. Zechariah's silence protects her from his sowing his doubts and fears and also causes him to stop talking and to listen 
and to remember what God's capable of. And that all sets the scene for St. Joseph. St. Joseph, on the other hand, in the beginning of the narrative of Jesus' birth, the scriptures paint a, a scene that's very profound, where Joseph says so much without a word being recorded. We know, unlike Zechariah, he's not an expert in the Hebrew scriptures, but he's a convicted, faithful Jewish man who knew the scriptures most importantly in his heart. Unlike Zechariah, who's a recognized authority, someone that commanded respect among his his fellow Jews, Joseph's a simple man. He's a tradesman. He's a good Jewish man trying to make ends meet but probably not really recognized beyond his family, the people in his village, people he had done work for. Joseph probably didn't even think about his lowliness in comparison to someone like Zechariah. Those kind of comparisons where jealousy and envy can enter in and distract and disturb and tempt. All because he had found the love of his life and of all women, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Most men, when they fall in love, believe that their wives-to-be are perfect. And in Joseph's case, he was right. He probably didn't feel worthy to find such perfection. He must have battled internally with himself with thoughts that this is too good to be true. We're going to share a life together. We're going to create a family. Which is probably why when he hears first hears this news from Mary that she's conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit, his silence in Scripture is incredibly moving because unlike Zechariah, we don't hear anything dismissive or disbelieving. In fact, the more I've prayed with Joseph over the years, the more I believe he wasn't filled with doubt over Mary or with God. If there were any doubts, it was probably more with himself. I knew she was too good to be with someone like me, that this is too good to be true. Mary was that special. So the lack of Joseph's words in that moment allows us to imagine him wrestling all that went on in his heart of hearts. Sadness of what he had imagined for himself evaporating, maybe some anger at himself for feeling such sadness over his personal plans not coming to fruition, maybe down on himself, feeling that those thoughts are selfish. Because Joseph loves Mary, and Mary loves Joseph, and they both love God, which ultimately is the thing that matters the most. So trying to put ourselves into that scene where we can imagine the the speechlessness of such a sacred moment, one writer beautifully described it that You can imagine this silence as closer to an experience of a man in a foreign land who doesn't speak the language. He has many things to offer, but no way to put them in words that can be understood. Their hearts had to have been filled with so many emotions. But beyond whatever personal struggles and personal feelings, Joseph keeps coming back to his faith in God. In simplicity and humility, this man's heart is filled with the awesomeness of what God is capable of and wanting just to stay in awe of that awesomeness, doing nothing to distract or undermine it. And that's why it's not shocking 
that the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. It makes it more dramatic almost. Unlike Zechariah, who talks to an angel in real time, as well as the Blessed Virgin Mary, Joseph didn't have that benefit of having a conversation. It's just a dream. And the fact that St. Matthew in his gospel account of this describes just Joseph waking up the next morning and simply doing what the angel commanded, we hear more about his faith and his trust in God than if he had ever said a word. Because it's one thing to say what we believe or that we trust. You could be a priest, Jewish like Zechariah or a Catholic for that matter, and know many sacred things and be surrounded by many sacred settings. But ultimately, the best sermons are the ones that demonstrate abandoning oneself to God's plan. Or as Joseph Foster's son would put it, thy will be done. In St. Joseph, we see a man living those words before Jesus ever spoke them and sharing that intimate prayer of the Our Father. Over the years, the more I prayed with the scene, I imagine Joseph didn't even share that plan to divorce Mary quietly with her until maybe much later, almost like confessing to his beloved, his embarrassment, that the thought had even crossed his mind more blown away by what he was included into, how he was invited to participate even more to be an essential part to the story of God saving his people, becoming a protector, completely self-emptying and selfless chaste lover to Mary, sharing the somewhat unimaginable role of parenting God incarnate. That one episode in that these brief mentions and these seeming silences of St. Joseph that we're meant to reflect on, recognizing that we see in St. Joseph how God continues to operate in unconventional, but oftentimes in accessible ways. So not to diminish the contributions of the brilliant and the eloquent and the bold and dramatic saints, but not to limit the potential for God to do some remarkable things in those who may not be as gifted in those ways. Recognizing God can and he does work in and through the simple, the faithful, and the humble. Like we find in the witness of the foster father of Jesus, the spouse of the Blessed Virgin, St. Joseph. As we travel together in these next nine nights of prayer, St. Joseph wants us to share in the silence of our hearts what's troubling, what's weighing us down, what's disturbing us the intentions that keep us up at night or reemerge throughout the day. And in that silence, to just let him and his silent witness speak to us of the goodness of God, of the faithfulness of God, inviting us to, to trust in that first and foremost. St. Joseph reminds us that we don't have to do great things to impress God. We already have his attention. And like Joseph, when in our humility, we simply come to him and we're open to him. God can use us as we are and accomplish with and through us ever more than we ever imagined. St. Joseph, pray for us.